0: Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We're in this series on humility. Change your life, change the world. And I really do believe if as a church we can grasp and apply and live out what the Bible says about humility, I think the world will be changed. Our lives will be changed, and the world will want the gospel that we're proclaiming. Now, to get to where we want to go today, there's a few passages. Normally, I like to take a passage or two, put it up on a screen right to start the sermon, and then we just dive into it. This week, I'm going to come out a little bit backwards. I want to set some stuff up for you that I think will set up for us the roots of where a lot of our pride comes from, and also the roots of where humility, true humility can come from, and why many of us miss the mark, even though we have really good intentions, okay? And so to get there, and so we'll get, we're will get, we going to jump into some passages in Acts and Luke at the end of this uh, sermon, but I first of all want to talk about stages of maturity, okay? And we're going to start with, uh, and, and as we go, you're just going to see, it's going to be self-explanatory, but how many of you have ever noticed toddler stage, okay? How many of you have ever had any experience uh, observing the behavior of a toddler? Just raise your hand, just so I know you're with me right at the beginning, okay? So if you've ever had chance to observe the behavior of a toddler, how many of you have noticed or had chance to notice that toddlers tend to be a little bit self-centered? Has any of you ever noticed that? Okay? Just a wee bit, right? So now the question is, now often we preachers will preach it this way, okay? So those of you Whether, and it doesn't matter if you're a parent or not a parent, no doubt you've seen toddlers at work at some point in your life, and it's it's me, 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 right? It's me. I want my needs met. I want them met now. There's often not a a polite please. Uh, They can be incredibly selfish. And, uh, and for everybody who's not the parent, generally these outbursts are cute or funny. Or if you're a parent and your kids are out of that stage already, you, you almost laugh. It's like, you, it's actually almost wonderful to see someone else's kids freaking out. But, which is, that's a sinful response. But often we preachers, you know, so we'll talk about toddlers and their selfishness. And, and, and you don't have to raise your hand on this because I know I have said this in the past. Okay? But we'll talk about how, I mean, that is just a sign of sin at work right? Like, that's the sign of sin at work. That's the devil's at work, and our kids just come out warped, and that's why they're self-centered. Now, you know, I don't doubt that, you know, sin and the brokenness of this world contribute to some of the problems that our toddlers have. But let me tell you, most of this self-centered behavior that toddlers display does not have to do anything with evil. It might feel to you like they're being evil, but a lot of it just has to do with brain development, okay? Okay. So your kid is born, they're not born fully mature, okay? Newsflash. That's what you as a parent are there for, okay? So they're not born fully mature. They're not born with, you know, self-control, all these sorts of things. They don't, and it's not because everything's evil and the devil's at work in their life. It's because of brain development. And so did you know that actually when when a baby is first born, did you know that they don't even have for the first few months uh, a, a newborn baby does not even have a fully realized idea that they are a separate individual. Okay? Now, this is something we don't often think about because uh, we just think, well, of course, I mean, everybody, you're a human being, you know you're an individual. But do you know that when a baby is first born, their brain is not developed enough? They don't even fully realize that they are a separate person from their mother. Okay? Now, okay, so that's a little baby. Now, it takes a few months, over the course of a few months, as their brain develops, they start to realize more and more and more that they are a separate individual from their mother and from the people around them, okay? Now, that, that is happening over the first few months. Actually, more than that, it's happening over the first few years of their lives, okay? It's not even complete when a kid is two or three or in the toddler stage, that, by that point, they know I'm a separate person, but they're discovering all kinds of things about them. In fact, one researcher, okay, did, uh, as part of a research project, they, they videotaped a three year old, a little three year old girl. Her name was Jennifer, okay? And Jennifer was sitting on the floor uh, and wearing a little sticker on her forehead, okay? And so after, so they took a little video, then they showed little Jenny the video of herself sitting on the floor, wearing a sticker on her forehead. And they asked Jennifer, what do you see? And she said, I see Jennifer, and I see a sticker. And it's like, oh, that's so great. And, uh, and so you think, okay, see, she understands who she is. And then she followed up by saying, and why is she wearing my shirt? And I was at three years old, okay? What, so what's going on there? Okay, so this kid is three years old. They have an idea. I'm a separate person. But it actually takes a few years till they fully realize all that comes with that. So part of the brain development that's happening at toddler stage is I'm finding out a whole bunch of things that we take for granted as adults. They're finding out, I'm a separate person with my own needs. I'm a separate person with my own desires. And that is all stuff that you have to discover. You're not born, we're not robots. You're not born with that stuff just in you. You have to figure it out. Your brain has to develop it, okay? Okay? So part of the reason toddlers are so self-centered is they're just discovering. It's not because, oh, they're evil and the devil's at work in their life. Now, some of them, the really, really bad ones, maybe the devil is touching them. Okay? You, you, but, but no, this is actually about brain development. Here's the thing. Before you can be others-centered, you know this? You first have to go through a stage where you're self-centered because you will never know how important it is to meet someone else's needs unless you first discover what a need is. Have you ever thought about that before? Like, if you have no concept of what it feels like to have a need, and to have something that you need someone else to meet that need, and you have no concept of what it feels like to have a need and then to have someone else meet it, how could you ever do it for someone else? So it's all part of brain development. By the way, the same thing happens with sharing, by the way. What do we parents always do with our toddlers if they're not sharing? And again, we think this is, a, this is original sin at work. This is original sin at work. They just come out, of, they come out of the womb wicked. They don't want to share. It's not because they come out of the womb wicked. It's because how can you ever learn to share something unless you first learn how to own something? You ever think about that? Let me, let me put it to you this way, because that might not land on you until you're like, well, I don't know, but that makes sense to me. Okay, let's put it this way. Let's imagine that one of you comes to me after this sermon and says, I really need a car. I can't get a job because I don't have a car. I can't afford a car. And so I say, no problem. I've got Doug Leckie's keys on the desk here. And I'm, you just take his truck. That's yours. Have I shared a vehicle with you? No. I have stolen a vehicle for you. <laughs> okay? If I give you Caleb, eh, like, is that sharing? If I take someone else up? If I see there's a ministry here in town that really needs money in order to care for the homeless, and I steal a million dollars and give it to that ministry, have I done something very generous and wonderful? No. I haven't shared. I haven't given you anything. I have stolen. See, before you can ever know the joy of truly sharing something, you first have to know what it is to own something. But do you know that mo- many of us well-meaning parents completely short circuit that process. Because we don't actually teach our kids how to own something and have power over it for themselves. We just go straight to give it to share it with them right now. Like their sister, who's just a piece of work herself, <laughs> wants a toy that they were already playing with. And then there's a fight, and then mom and dad come in and we say, just share it with your sister. What have we just taught them there? We've taught them, actually, you own nothing. Which is true. Ultimately. But we haven't taught them what it means to have something. See, you actually have to go through a self-centric stage to get to an other-centric stage. If you, so this is why, like, if, if you want to apply some wisdom in your parenting, one of the things you want to do, now, of course... You don't want to teach your kids to be selfish, but if you want to apply some wisdom in your parenting, actually allowing your children to own some things where they can say no is the first step to them at some point in their lives being able to say yes with something they have the power to say no about. And that's beautiful. It also might not be as easy as just yelling at them and making them share. But that's part of the, that's part of the adventure of parenting. My point is, okay, now, some adults, if you aren't raised in a loving, healthy home, you might have pieces of your, whatever you want to call it, soul, spirit, personality, whatever, you might carry pieces of this toddler stage with you to the end because you never actually are given the opportunity to to move through it. Now, that's a sad thing. But generally, in a loving environment, as toddlers develop and as they learn to get their own needs met, and by the way, just because it's brain development doesn't mean you have to give in to it, because some of you are thinking, oh, I see what Chris is doing. He's one of these newfangled people, and it's just parenting style, which is let them do whatever they want. It's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it's probably not so much sin, it's just brain development. That doesn't mean that, that you just say, well, just act like a toddler then. It means that you give them loving guidelines, because it's in the limits, the loving limits and guidelines you give them that helps them to develop. But as they develop, you'll notice something else that begins to happen is as they move out of the toddler stage, they get their, their center, their brain develops, and they're able to care about more people than just themselves. And so they'll go through this stage where now, okay, well, I actually have a close friend or I have family, and they matter to me too. Now, often you'll see this stage, notice I didn't put close friends they go through this stage where they can only play with one person at a time. You ever notice that? Now, some people never get through this stage either, right? Um, because actually playing with two or three or four people at once is actually hard. Particularly if you're a hormonal young woman, right? But I'm strike that from the internet, okay? Um, it can get very complex, right? But, if, if that, so, but you can play with one at a time, right? You have a mom and a dad... And maybe one sibling you like. But other than that, you, you can't help. That's, that's brain development. Your circle is expanding. It's not because your kids are evil. It's because this is how it works. And you can't go f- get to this stage until you've learned about this stage. And then as you grow, you get to another one. And I'm going to call this tribe-centric thinking. And the first group of people we think of when we think of this group is teenagers is as your kids get older, assuming they're in a loving environment where they can grow and develop and all these sorts of things, their circle will get bigger than just a close friend or a family. They now want to identify with a much bigger group of people, a group of people who's a lot like them. And that's the question that they're often asking in this group right here is they're asking who is like me. And this is where we get some of those stereotypical groups, right? In high school, we get these stereotypical groups, your jocks, right? Your computer nerds, uh, you know, in my day, they were called bangers. I don't know if any of you knows. There's a group like that. In fact, how many of you went to the SR and there was a banger hall? Okay, so uh, which I was terrified to go down unless I was surrounded by four or five guys from my group. Um, um, you know, you have your music kids, you have your sports kids, you have all that sort of stuff, right? What this is teenagers. This is tribe centric. I'm not just looking. Okay, so I've gone through this. I don't want just be. I don't just care about myself. And I don't just care about my family and a couple of close friends. I am now, my brain is at this place, the way God has designed us. I want to identify with a much bigger group who is like me. I want to identify with a new tribe. Now, here's the thing. We kind of laugh about this and we think, yeah, that's teenagers, right? That's teenagers, that's high school. Here's the deal. Uh, Most of us adults, many of us adults never leave this stage. This is where many adults stop right here. Now, we don't bond around, uh, you know, jocks, music, computer nerds so much anymore uh, because many of us lose our athletic abilities if we had any in the first place. Um, So it looks a little different than it does in the teen stage, but this is where many adults actually stop. We just just bond now around a new set of bigger, more important, more adult-like groups. So we form new tribes around things like politics, religion, socioeconomic status, which is just kind of a big word. But basically, let me just put it to you this way. How many of you ever noticed that, like a business person, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I don't want anybody to feel bad yet. This is all brain developed. It has nothing to do with evil, okay? How many of you noticed that business people tend to hang around with business people? Like how many of you know, you know, someone who is like really wealthy and successful, who has a best friend or really close friend's who are on social assistance. It doesn't happen very often, does it? And why is that? Again, it's not because we're bad. I'm not, I'm not poking at anybody. How many of you know, uh, or how many of you guys have friends that are truly different than you? And I'm not talking personality. We love to talk about how I have friends that are totally different than me. What we really mean is personality. And the fact of the matter is, like for me, I bore myself. So I like hanging around with people who are different than me and lots of you guys do too. And then we think, see, I'm humble. Yeah, you hang around with people with different personalities but how many of us have really close friends? Like not just someone we go to, we see at work and we actually wave at them but they vote completely differently than us. They believe completely differently than us. They make a lot more money than us or a lot less money than us. How many of us truly have close relationships with people who are not in our tribe? And the answer is not many of us. And again, the reason is not because you and I are all evil. fact matter is, I don't even know totally how to break this. Because the fact of the matter is, if you own a $2 million house, I'm not one of those people. And I'd like to come to your house for dinner, but anyway, that's just another thing. But if you own a $2 million house, probably there are no rental side-by-sides right next to you. If you're a doctor, the people you work with are probably in a certain socioeconomic status. They're probably more educated. Why? Well, because you don't want someone without a high school degree doing surgery with a surgeon. So some of this is just the reality of how life is. I'm not saying it's because we're evil. It's not because we're bad. It's not because you're bad. I don't even totally know how to break it. But the fact of the matter is, many of us end up not really moving past the teenager stage. We just change our groupings to be around something else. So, here's where this begins to be applicable to the series we're in. Obeying Jesus when we're inside of our tribes is actually, if we're honest with ourselves, not super hard. It can be a bit hard because even within our tribes, anytime you have more than three people in a group, one of them is going to be more annoying than the other. So, you know, if you only hang around with other conservative, roughly same socioeconomic status Christians, well, that's still a pretty big group. And some of them you will like less than others. Some of them will even be annoying. And so you'll go to church. In fact, some of them might be your competitors in business. And they might even be slightly shady. And you don't really like them. But ultimately, they're really not that scary to you. Because they're still 98% the same as you. And so we go to church every week. And we open up the scriptures. or we, We have our devotions. And okay, let's say the preacher is preaching on love your enemies. And we have this powerful sermon, a little bit of music at the end. Oh, the mood, it's powerful. And the preacher's "Bring it home. we got to love our enemies. we got to turn the other cheek. And who are the examples that we're thinking of of who those enemies are? Well, they're people we just kind of don't like. It's no one that actually threatens our way of life. It's no one that's actually disgusting to us for the most part. For the most part, it's people who are a lot like us, but they just rub us the wrong way. And by the way, there's a level to which that's important. There's a level to which that is a level of maturity. We have to work on loving. If we don't go through this stage, we can't get to this one. If we don't go through this one, we can't get to this one. And if we don't learn to love the people in our own tribe, we're never going to learn to love the people who are outside our tribe. So I'm not saying it's bad. But we can fool ourselves We can read James 3 as we've done. I did a whole sermon on James 3 and 4 in this series. We can do a whole message on James 3 and 4 where it talks about being peace-loving and being gentle and being gracious and being sincere and being a listener and all of these things. And we can go, okay, yes. And we try to apply them within the tribe and that can be a little bit challenging. But ultimately, is that really all Jesus is calling us to. Is that what the fruit of the spirit is? Is yeah, be humble. So you're a business person and you want to be humble, so you get mentoring from another business person. That is actually a sign of humility. You you want to learn. Right? That's a sign of humility. That's great. But is that where it stops? Is that where we're capped at in our growth, in our in our growth? What, but what or what if Jesus is calling us as Christians? to a whole nother level of maturity? What if there's another level beyond this? That'll scare the absolute bejeebers out of all of us, but in which we will experience the Holy Spirit and his love in Jesus in ways we never imagined possible so long as we just stay at this level here. Well, I want to look at two passages of Scripture now, one in Luke 10 and one in Acts chapter 10. Let's start with Luke chapter 10, and Jesus has a conversation with a lawyer. Now remember, lawyers in Jesus' day were a bit different than lawyers today, okay? These were lawyers, were experts in our Old Testament, because that was their law book, okay? So it was much more tied to religious. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Lots of evangelical Christians ask that question, Okay? What does a person need to do to get eternal life? Jesus answers, what is written in the law. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There's all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's a little bit different of an answer than we Christians generally give because we tell people to to say, pronounce Jesus in your heart. But it really is a lot the same thing. We do mean the same thing. Love God, love people. That's the big thing, Okay. Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, if only this this lawyer would have just shut up. Just leave it here. You got the answer right. Like, Jesus asked you a question. You answered right. Leave it. You're ahead. But he has to justify himself. He's like, that was too easy of an answer. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yeah. And of course then, Jesus goes on and tells one of his most famous parables. And he tells this parable of what? The good Samaritan. Now why on earth would this man have asked this question? And why is the good Samaritan parable such a kind of shocking, shattering parable in its context? Well, the answer is because Jews and Samaritans were totally different tribes in every way you can imagine. See, when this Jewish lawyer was asking the question, who is my neighbor? He's probably thinking to himself, he's not even thinking about this side of things. He's thinking about this side of things. And he's thinking, probably Jesus is going to challenge me, maybe I got to love some poor Jews more. Or maybe Jesus is going to challenge me, I need to love irreligious Jews a little bit more. Or maybe he's going to tell me that that opposing religious group, the Sadducees, oh, don't really like them. He's going to tell me that I need to love them a little more. But whatever the case is, his world is his tribe, But when he asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus was about to obliterate what he's thinking of in his tribe. And Jesus goes to someone who is completely outside of his tribe that he would never consider. He goes to a person who is opposed. It's not just different theology. The Samaritans disagreed with the Jews on where the temple should be. They thought the whole temple in Jerusalem, the big deal, where you go to do your sacrifices, Wrong temple, wrong place. It wasn't just a different theology, it was opposed theology. They didn't just have different political views, they had opposed political views. They wanted to kill each other. They were constantly trying to get favor with the king, so that if the Samaritans could get favor with Herod, then they could get Herod to go against the Jews. It wasn't just like we can live together and be different, it was opposed. They had different ethnicity, they had different everything. And between the two tribes, you have anger and fear and self-protection. Jesus, please just challenge me in here. Just challenge me to love someone who's a bit hard to love, but not someone I'm actually scared of. Not someone who actually disgusts me. Not someone who has political views that actually could hurt me. This is anger and fear, and the Samaritans feel it the same way back here. But Jesus goes right outside of it, And he says, I'm going to redraw the lines. You've got tribe and tribe. And he tells a parable and he says, I don't like that. I want you to draw a circle around you and the Samaritans. And actually, those are your neighbors. That people with an opposed theology, opposed political views, and a different ethnicity. You're actually all in the same family in the sense that you're all part of humanity. And I no longer think it's acceptable for you to just love people in here. I'm taking away the boundaries, and now you're all neighbors. Yeesh, Jesus. All humanity, Jesus challenges us to another level of maturity if we're willing to go there. Toddlers are self-centric. We don't get mad at them for being there, though. We do hope they won't stay there for 18 years, though. We want them to move on to this. We want to move to this. Jesus invites us and says, will you move one more? And that is where we redraw the lines and all humanity becomes my neighbor. That is the point of the Good Samaritan. All humanity becomes my neighbor. By the way, if you think that's just one parable, I could show you so many examples, but this is central to the entire message of the New Testament. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. This is the gospel message. Acts chapter 10, Jesus leaves, and the Christians still don't want to leave their tribe. So the Spirit of God has to get a hold of Peter. About noon the following day, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Now, for us, it's like, oh, cool, reptiles and birds. And a vision, neat, okay? Remember, this is, the, the Jews have the Old Testament. This vision is telling Peter to disobey the Bible. These are all animals he's not supposed to eat. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter is a good Christian. He's not a, I mean, he is a Christian already, but he's speaking as a Jew, but he's a good Christian. Surely not, Lord. I've read my Bible. Absolutely not. I'm big into holiness and purity. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied. I almost said Pete. I lost the R there at the end. Surely not, Lord. Pete replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, the point of his vision really isn't about food. The Spirit is pushing Peter. It's actually time for you to go. The reason for these food laws was to keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate. Why would you keep the Jews and the Gentiles separate? It's not because the Jews are just a bunch of raving uh, uh, racists. They were afraid in the Old Testament that if we hang out with those Gentiles, we're going to end up worshiping their gods and committing their sins. So in order, it doesn't it sound so pious and good. So in order for us not to fall into our idolatry, and in order for us not to fall into sinful lifestyles, we'll keep ourselves separate from them. But the voice spoke to him a second time. And this is powerful. Do not call anything. Now wait, wait till this changes the next verse I'll show you. But do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. As a result of this vision, Peter finally leaves the nest. He leaves his tribe. He leaves the people who believe the Bible like he does. He leaves the people who are upstanding citizens like him. He leaves the people who worship God just like him. And he goes to a Roman soldier's house. And while he's there, this spirit grabs a hold of these Roman soldiers. And then Peter says this. Now remember here, God says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. But watch how Peter changes it after he speaks to these Romans. He says this. You are all well aware that it is against our law For a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It's a non Jew. You're all aware, we're not supposed to do that. And it's not because we're bad people, it's because we're so busy trying to be good people. And we're afraid that if we as good people hang out with you as bad people, we're gonna become bad people. But God has shown me that I should not call, now he moves from anything, doesn't he? He moves from anything that I should not call any what that I should not call any one impure or unclean we could probably just sit right there for a few minutes and let that whew. God shows him a vision I don't call anything impure God has made clean. Peter says I should not call any one I should not call any one, impure or unclean. That's a powerful statement. Spirit was kicking the early Christians out of the nest. He's telling Peter and the disciples and the other early Christians, he's saying, it's not enough. I'm not actually looking for a bunch of people who are trying so hard to be good that they can't go out and love the world. I'm actually looking for a group of people who will go out and risk everything by loving the world. Now, I want you to notice something else here, too. I want you to notice the order that this happens in, and I could show you this throughout the Gospels. Because sometimes we as Christians can fool ourselves. We can say, oh, I'm totally open to any sinner. Yes, and sometimes what we mean by that is, if they will repent of their sins and come to church, there is no sinner I won't accept. Except, at that point, are you accepting a sinner or are you just accepting someone after they come into your tribe? I want you to notice that God does not go in the vision and say, Peter, they're coming to you. The unclean and the the impure are going to get their lives right with me and they're going to come to you. Get ready for it. Somebody says, I want you to go to them while they are still where they're at. I want you to go to them. They're not going to come to you. You're going to go to them. And by the way, isn't this the heart of God? This is the heart of the God we serve. Our most famous Verse in the Bible. For God so loved. I mentioned this last week. At the beginning of service. For God so loved the Christians. For God came to the world. Because he so loved the Jews. For God so loved the, the people. That were already worshiping him. And repented already. That he gave his one and only son. No. For God so loved the world. Everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He came to us that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't just come to save Jews and Christians. He came to save Hindus, atheists, Buddhists, Muslims, Arabs, conservatives, liberals, straight people, gay people, every kind of people. Oh, man, why did the lawyer have to ask the question? Because I'd rather they changed and became a Christian first, because I'll love anybody if they first become a Christian. Well, what does this mean for us today, and how do we apply this? Our whole society today is made out of tribes. It's not just Christians. By the way, social media now is actually entrenching this habit among us as humans. We have a whole society that's divided up into tribes. And I just put one letter things. You can make them think whatever you want. You could think of A as atheist. You could think of M as Muslim. You could think of C as Christian. L as liberal or C as conservative or whatever group of people you want to put there. But our whole society is made up of tribes. And then what we do is we fight between the tribes. Within the tribes, we actually love each other. It's actually true. Most of the tribes, we take care of each other, as a general rule. We're generally decent to each other, and that's why our reputations within our tribes are always better than between the tribes. When atheists talk to each other, they're always like, they always think of themselves as nice people. When we talk about atheists, though, we talk about them as mean, angry people. How often have we, have Christians fallen for the stereotype that all Muslims are terrorists? Why? Because we're scared of that other group. And when you actually meet some Muslims, you find, oh, wait a minute, there's actually a lot of really wonderful people in there. And atheists think about this, and this thinks about that, and these people think about that. When they're in their group, they think they're pretty nice. This is classic tribal thinking. You think of yourselves as good and everybody else as scary. And our society works off of we all fight for power as a tribe. So I have to win by other groups losing. And sadly, the church reflects this tribalism instead of transcending it. Instead of transcending it. So here's what the Bible tells us. Three quick things. How are we going to apply this? We're going to have to rewrite our circle from this to this. Because according to Acts 10 and Luke's, Luke 10, we are not supposed to call anyone unclean who is made in the image of God. No one who is made in the image of God is unclean or unpure anymore. That's the first step. It's to stop looking at this as In order for us to win, everybody else has to lose. Can you imagine if Jesus had thought that way? He wouldn't have come and died for us. He thought very differently. He said, in order for everybody to win, I have to die. No one is unclean to us. We redraw our lines. Number two, no longer do we seek to win over the other tribes. This is actually what the entire Bible is challenging us to do. Look what Philippians says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In, otherwise, in other words, try nothing. Not just with other Christians, with everybody. Do nothing out of selfish ambition where you're trying to win while they lose. Nothing is about winning or losing when you're following Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others, not just other Christians. The people who scare you above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Can you imagine what would happen in our world If the world could view, see a church that didn't just do what they did, but did this, and by the way, you might say, yeah, but that's scary. We might get hurt. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Do you remember what is at the center of the entire Christian faith? It's a cross that is the center of our faith, is God did not come to earth to win while everybody else loses. He came to die. By the way, that's, what we, that's why we're called Christians. The moment you redraw these lines, you say, yeah, but they haven't redrawn their lines. You're right. And yes, in this, there will be dying. There will be suffering. When you love people and take down your barriers of safety, there is a death there, just like Jesus died for us. But I'll tell you, when you've reached True Jesus maturity. True Jesus maturity is not measured by how many hours a day you pray and how pure you are that you never think even a bad thought. You want to know when you're walking closely with Jesus? When you can walk into a group of atheists and weep for the things that make the atheists weep. When you can walk into a group of Muslims and weep for the things that Muslims weep for, Jesus' spirit is truly touching you. And what's the group that most disgusts and fear and scares you? When you can go into that tribe and weep for the things that they weep about, the spirit of Jesus is truly at work in you. Now you say, this is absolutely a ridiculous message, and if we did this... Christians would lose. Funny thing is, Jesus' kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Meek is just another word for humble. And Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount famous, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. You know how we win the earth for Jesus? By being meek. So we finish with a verse, James 3, which I went over earlier in this series. But this time I want us to read this, James 3, specifically in light of the other tribes in our society. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then what? Peace loving, not just with other Christians, considerate, not just with other Christians submissive not just with other christians full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere not just with other christians what good is that everybody does that within their own tribes jesus is calling us to do that with people in other tribes peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness How not you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes And let's ask Jesus to make us truly brave because actually to be a Christian requires bravery because it means living with the cross at the center of your life. Not in it to win it, in it to serve. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to us before we had it all together. Forgive us. Forgive us for simply reflecting the world and how the world does things, how the world, in the world, we divide into tribes based on what we believe and what we want to do. And then we try to win against the other tribes. Jesus, give us the courage to pull down some of those boundaries. And do what you ask the disciples to do first in Acts chapter 10. To go into the other tribes. And to show humility. And to win the world for you by your love. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.